Section 6 of Marvels of Scientific Invention. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arvind Sundar from arvindsundar.com. Marvels of Scientific Invention by Thomas W. Corbin. Scientific Inventions at Sea. The safety of our fellow creatures has always been a strong stimulus to our inventive faculties. The occurrence of a bad railway accident, and roughly, its nature can be inferred from the files of the patent office, for such an event brings men's thoughts to devising ways and means of preventing a recurrence, and an avalanche of such inventions descends upon the patent department in consequence. In like manner, a particularly distressing accident to a lifeboat some years ago brought out many inventions for the improvement of those romantic craft. Many of the inventions which arise under these conditions are, of course, utterly worthless, but some of them come to stay. It is not surprising, therefore, when we think of the almost innumerable wrecks which happen, even with modern shipping, that human ingenuity has been extremely busy in devising ways for bringing more of safety and less of risk into the lives of those who go down to the sea in ships. Of these, perhaps none is more fascinating than the modern lighthouse, with its tall tower, its brightly flashing light, standing undisturbed in the wildest storm, quietly and persistently sending forth its guiding rays, no matter how the elements may be buffeting it. There is something specially attractive in this perfect embodiment of quiet strength and devotion to duty. Of course, its origin is very ancient. One of the earliest inventions, no doubt, was the bright thought of a very primitive man who lit a fire on a hill to serve as a guide to some belated friends out in their fishing canoes. From some such beginning, the modern lighthouse, a magnificent product of the science of civil engineering and the science of optics, has arisen. Of the difficulties encountered in the construction of lighthouse towers on outlying rocks, much has been written. The historic Eddystone, for example, has quite a voluminous literature of its own. Of the light itself, however, much less is known. It will be interesting first to note the different purposes for which a light may be required, and then see how the apparatus of the lighthouse is made to serve these purposes. There is the making light, perched, if possible, upon some high eminence, deriving its name from the fact that the sailor sights it as he is making the land. Vessels approaching England from the southwest by night first see the light at the lizard. The transatlantic vessels know they are approaching land by catching sight of the fastnet rock light off the coast of Ireland. Cape Race light serves in the same way for those about to enter the St. Lawrence and Navisink for the entrance to New York Harbor. All such as these have to be of the greatest power practicable, so that they may be visible not only at the longest possible distance, but also under unfavorable conditions, such as haze and slight fog. No light, of course, can penetrate thick fog, but in light fog and haze a powerful light can be seen at considerable distances. For the same reason, these lights must be high up or the curvature of the ocean surface will limit their range. A light elevated 100 feet above the sea level will be visible nearly 16 miles away, but if only 50 feet up, it will be invisible at 13 miles. To be seen 40 miles away, it must be as high as 1,000 feet. 
but then again height is in some cases a disadvantage for sometimes fog hovers a little distance above the sea while below it the air is clear and the higher a light may be the more likely is it to have its lantern immersed in a floating cloud of fog many readers familiar with the south coast of britain will remember that the light which used to show on the summit of beachy head is there no more but has been replaced by a tower at the foot of the cliffs the reason being that it may be below the clouds of fog which are prevalent at that point but the mention of beachy head introduces us to another class of lights known as coasting lights since they are intended to lead the mariner on from point to point along a coast it will be seen at once that in many cases they do not need to be visible at such great distances as the making lights when the mariner has sighted the lizard for example he knows where he is in order that he may learn that important fact as soon as possible it is desirable that the light should have the greatest possible range but having thus located himself when he begins to feel his way along the english channel he is guided by the coasting lights and so long as they are of such range that he will never be out of sight of one or two of them that will be sufficient thus the beachy headlight in its present low position has a sufficient range for its purpose with the added advantage of more freedom from obscuration by fog thus we see how the local conditions and the purpose of each particular light have to be taken into consideration in determining its position and power the eddystone again is an example of a further class it simply serves to denote the position of a group of dangerous rocks its function is not so much guidance although no doubt it often serves for that but for warning the lizard light beckons the oncoming ship to the safety of the english channel the eddystone warns it away from danger the latter therefore and similar lights are warning lights right at the entrance of the english channel that greatest of all highways for shipping there lie the Skilly Isles. This group comprises some few islands of fair size from which we draw those plentiful supplies of beautiful spring flowers. But it also includes a large number of rocky islets which have sent many a strong ship to its doom. On one of these islets, therefore, the Bishop's Rock, there now stands a very powerful light which exemplifies many whose purpose is the double one of welcoming the mariner as he approaches our shores and at the same time warning him of a local danger. Such are both making and warning lights. Of no less importance, though less impressive, are the guiding lights which guide the ships into and out of harbours and through narrow channels. These are generally arranged in pairs, one of the pair being a little way behind and above the other. Thus, when the sailor sees them both, one exactly over the other, he knows he is on the right course. Sometimes, lighthouses have subsidiary lights as well as the main light, to mark a passage between two dangers, or to give warning of some danger. The subsidiary lights are often colored, and they are generally sectors, showing not all around a complete circle, or even a considerable portion of one, but just in one certain direction. They are generally shown from a window in the tower lower down below the main light. Finally, it is important to remember that every light must be distinguishable from its neighbors. Hence, every one in any given locality has a different character from all the others. This character is given to it by means of flashes. 
Instead of showing, as the primitive lights did, a steady light, the modern lighthouse exhibits a series of flashes, the duration of which, together with the intervals between, give it its distinctive character. This flashing arrangement has a further advantage over the steady light. Each flash can be made more powerful than a steady light could be, but more of that later. The actual source of light varies with circumstances. The electric arc is, as we all know, a very powerful light. In fact, it can be made the most powerful of all, but its light is decidedly bluish. Now the time when a light is most of all needed is when the weather is thick. Fogs varying from a slight haze to a thick pall of darkness are very common occurrence, and the lighthouse must be able as far as possible to penetrate them. As a matter of fact, clean fog, such as one gets at sea, is not by any means opaque. The black fogs of the great cities are another matter, but they are not the sort which afflict the merino. On a foggy day in the open country, or by the sea, it is often particularly light. Indeed, the light is of a peculiarly diffused nature, which gives a nice even illumination to everything. Thus, we see the fog is really transparent, but it diffuses the light. It does not stop the light rays, but simply bends them about and scatters them in all directions. Thus, we can see nothing through the fog, yet a flood of light reaches us through it. In its effect, it is like that crinkled glass which is often used for partitions between rooms, which lets the light through, but which cannot be seen through. We see, then, that the effect which a fog produces is mainly to refract the light rays. Each little drop of water, for it must be remembered that fog is myriads of tiny drops of liquid, it is not vapor, acts like a minute lens and bends the rays which pass through it. And the more blue a ray is, the more it is bent. On the contrary, the more red it is, the less is it bent. When a beam of light is analyzed in the spectroscope, the red rays are bent least and the blue rays most, so that the red rays fall at one end of the spectrum and the blue at the other. Now we only see a thing when light rays proceeding from every part of it fall straight, or nearly so, upon our eyes. Consequently, since red rays are bent and scattered by the fog less than the blue rays are, a red light will be more easily seen through a fog than a blue one. It might seem from this that a red glass put in front of a light would make it better for this purpose. But that is not the case, for the simple reason that filtering the light through red glass does not really make it any redder than it was before. It simply makes it look redder by extracting from the original light all except the red. But a source of light which is naturally reddish is so because it is more plentifully endowed with red rays, while a bluish light like the electric arc is naturally deficient in red rays. Consequently, we should be inclined to expect from theory that the electric arc would not be a good light for a lighthouse, since it would lack penetrating power in foggy weather. Some readers may have noticed themselves, in towns where electric lights and gas lamps are in use near each other, that the latter, though relatively feebler under normal conditions, seem to give more light in fog, and experiments show that this is really the case. So although there are some lighthouses with electric arc lights, that which is now believed to be the best is an oil lamp of special design using a mantle of the Welschbach type. The oil is stored in strong steel reservoirs into which air is pumped by means of a pump not unlike those used to inflate bicycle tires. By this means, the pressure is maintained upon the oil of about 65 pounds per square inch. 
This forces the oil up a pipe and drives it in a jet into a vaporizer, a tube heated from the outside so that in it the oil is turned into gas. This gas then rises to the burner and heats the mantle, just as the gas does in the ordinary incandescent gaslight. Indeed, in the case of lights on the mainland near a town, the gas from the town main is often utilized. But this simple arrangement for using vaporized oil, as will readily be seen, can be employed anywhere. A little of the gas produced is led through a branch pipe and burned to heat the vaporizer. To start the apparatus, the vaporizer is heated with a little methylated spirit. Thus everything is quite self-contained and so simple that there is little to get out of order. The largest size of lamp will give 2400 candle power, with an expenditure of 2 one quarter pints of oil per hour, just common oil too, of the kind used with ordinary wick lamps. Having got a source of powerful light, the next thing is to collect that light and throw it in the direction required. For the light proceeds from the lamp in all directions, practically, and much of it would be entirely wasted could it not be collected and guided in the required direction. The earliest attempt at this was to use a reflector of bright polished metal. In the most improved form, these were made to the peculiar curve known as a parabola. This is a curve obtained by cutting a cone in a certain way, wherefore it is one of the conic sections and its particular appropriateness for this work resides in the fact that if a light be placed at a certain point known as the focus, all the diverging rays which fall upon the reflector will be reflected in the same direction, parallel to each other. An ordinary spherical mirror would reflect them either back to the lamp or in diverging directions. At any distance, the beam from the parabolic reflector will be more intense than that from the spherical one, since the rays will be closer together. But even with the parabolic one, there is some diffusion, for the simple reason that whereas the focus is a mathematical point, position without magnitude, the most concentrated form of light known has a considerable magnitude. Hence, the rays proceeding from the center of the mantle are reflected as per the theory, but those from the outlying parts of it are somewhat diffused. This difficulty cannot possibly be overcome, and hence even in the finest examples of lighthouse architecture, the flashes are not quite sharp and clear-cut. There is a central moment, so to speak, wherein the flash is almost blinding in its intensity, but it is preceded by a period of growing brightness and succeeded by one of decreasing light. In the modern apparatus, however, metallic mirrors are entirely dispensed with, their place being taken by reflecting prisms of glass. The metallic ones had to be continually rubbed to keep them clean, and this soon dulled their brightness, while the glass prisms need only to be wiped carefully, which operation has little effect upon their surface. It may come as a surprise to some that reflecting prisms are possible. The idea of refraction through a prism is quite familiar. Such forms the essential principle of the spectroscope. Refraction is explained to every schoolchild in order to account for the rainbow but reflection by a piece of the clearest glass seems a contradiction in terms, almost. Yet, it is only a question of shape. In some prisms, the light is simply bent as it passes through. In others, it is bent twice, so that it leaves the prism just as if it had been reflected off a mirror. Both devices are used in the lighthouse. Let us see how they are combined so as to perform the work to be done. 
Take first of all the case of a light upon an isolated rock where the warning is needed equally all around. All that is necessary here is to pick up those rays which, if left to themselves, would fall upon the water near the foot of the tower, and those which would waste themselves skywards, and then to gather all the rays into several bundles or beams. We will suppose a simple case in which the light is supposed to give flashes at regular intervals. We are in the topmost room of the lighthouse, the lantern as it is called. In the centre there stands the murette or pedestal. In this, several columns support a circular platform on the top of which there moves what we might call a turntable, which in turn bears a frame of gunmetal into which are fitted a maze of glass bars, triangular in section and curved to form concentric circles. The whole structure, possibly, is of great size. From the floor to the platform is as high as an ordinary man. Indeed, around the turntable there is a gallery which forms a roof over our heads, so that it is only after mounting some iron steps into this gallery that we are able to examine the glass part. As we ascend, we notice that the walls of the chamber as far up as the gallery are formed of iron plates, while above that there is a metal framework filled in with glass panes, and above all, a dome-shaped roof. Having reached the platform, we proceed to examine the glass, and we find that the metal framework forms a cage with four sides, each approximately flat, but really slightly spherical. Each of these sides is called a panel. In the center of each is a lens. Peeping through the interstices between the prisms, we perceive that the lamp is inside the structure, exactly in the center, so that its light shines directly through the central lens or bullseye. Around this bullseye, forming refracting prisms. Around this again are more bars in the form of segments, which together form circles, some being refracting prisms and others reflecting prisms. All the light rays from the lamp which fall on any one prism are deflected, so that they proceed approximately in the same direction. Those prisms in the upper part lay hold of the rays which would otherwise go up into the sky. Those at the bottom collect those which would fall near the foot of the tower, so scarcely any are lost. But for the fact that the lamp itself is comparatively large and not a theoretical point, as already explained, the beam from this panel would be perfectly straight, parallel and of uniform density everywhere. As it is, it widens slightly as it proceeds, but, practically speaking, we might call it a solid beam of light. Each of the panels sends forth such a beam, so that they strike out in four directions from the central lamp, much as four spokes from the hub of a wheel. Then, descending once more to the floor from which we started, we see that among the columns there is a large clockwork arrangement, the purpose of which is to drive round the turntable and all that it carries. In the language of the lighthouse engineer, the optical apparatus, or more briefly, the apparatus and as this turns the radiating beams of light sweep out round the horizon and in succession strike into the eyes of any mariner who may be within range. Each time a beam strikes him, he sees a flash. If the apparatus revolve once a minute, he will see four flashes every minute, one from each panel. Let us consider, then, the advantages of this wonderful mechanism with its cunning arrangement of prisms. It is these latter, of course, which are the important thing. The rest, the mechanical portion, is simply for the purpose of holding them and turning them at the proper speed. 
in the first place the contrivance gives us flashes instead of a steady light it gives the lighthouse its character then again it enhances the brightness of the light instead of shining all around the light is concentrated in four special directions and the light which would be wasted upwards or downwards is saved and brought into use but suppose that the lighthouse we are considering be near the shore so that there is no need for it to throw any light in one the landward direction then we should see inside the revolving framework with its prisms a fixed frame with reflecting prisms which would catch any rays going from the lamp in the direction of the land and simply hurl them as it were back into the flame thus the intensity of the flame becomes increased by those rays thrown back which would else have been wasted or suppose that the character of the light is such that the flashes have to be at irregular intervals then the framework instead of being symmetrically four-sided would be of an irregular shape and that brings us to a beautiful feature of the mechanism of the apparatus we have been discussing a four-panel arrangement suppose that we were to reduce it to three then since all the light would be concentrated into three beams instead of four each beam would be more intense we should thereby have the increased range of our apparatus without any increase in the cost of oil, for nothing, as it were. But to get the same number of flashes per minute, we should have to drive it around so much faster. But increased speed means increased burden on the keepers who have to wind up the heavy weights which operate the clockwork. So there is a limit to the speed which can be attained. But if friction can be almost eliminated, the apparatus can revolve at a high speed without throwing undue burden upon the men. But how can friction thus be got rid of? Messrs. Chance Brothers, the great lighthouse constructors of Birmingham, have done it, almost entirely, by floating the apparatus on mercury. The turntable has on its underside a large ring which nearly fits a cast-iron trough on the top of the pedestal. In this trough there is mercury, so that upon the liquid metal the apparatus floats as if upon a circular raft. The table with its lenses, prisms, and other fittings may weigh six or seven tons, yet it can be pushed around by one finger. The various sizes of optical apparatus are known as orders. One of the first order has a focal distance of 920 millimeters. This means that there is that distance between the center of the lamp and the bullseye. They descend by successive stages down to the sixth order, with a focal distance of 150 millimeters, while the most important lights are of an order superior even to the so-called first, termed the hyperradial, the focal distance of which is 1330 millimeters. A recent example of a hyperradial light is at the well-known Cape Race in Newfoundland. It revolves once every 30 seconds, giving a flash of 3 seconds every 7.5 seconds. The optical apparatus weighs 7 tons. Most lighthouses are fitted with fog signals of some kind which have a distinctive character the same as the lights. Some are horns blown at intervals by compressed air, often obtained from a special air pump driven by an oil engine. Another thing is to let off detonators at stated intervals. But perhaps the most interesting of all is the submarine telephone. The trouble with audible signals is that they are apt to vary as the conditions of the atmosphere change. For, strange though it may appear, the air which is the natural medium by which sounds are carried to our ears is really a very bad substance for the purpose. Water is much superior. 
A swimmer who cares to try the experiment of lying upon the water with his ears immersed, while a friend beats a gong under the water some distance off, will be astounded at the result. So many modern ships are fitted with underwater ears, waterproof telephone receivers really. One is fixed each side of the vessel, the wires from them being led to the telephone receivers near the bridge. Many lighthouses and lightships in like manner are fitted with underwater bells which can be rung at intervals. The sounds so conveyed through the water are always the same. Atmospheric or similar changes have no effect upon them. And, moreover, the officer can tell which side of his ship the bell is. If it be on his port side, it sounds louder in his port telephone and vice versa. By turning his ship until he hears them equally, he knows that he is pointing directly to or from the bell. Thus, if the bell belong to a warning light, he can steer confidently right away from the danger even in the thickest fog. But science has not only provided the mariner with lights of marvelous power and of strange distinctive characters, and reliable sound signals for foggy weather, it has also found him a reliable compass, but that is worthy of a chapter to itself. End of section 6. Recording by Arvind Sundar from arvindsundar.com.